You're listening to the Flip My Funnel podcast, a daily podcast dedicated to helping B2B marketing, sales, and customer success professionals become masters of their craft. It's Tuesday, and today you'll hear an episode from our Takeover series. Every month, we ask a different practitioner or thought leader to host a series of interviews that cover a specific theme that's relevant to our community. And like Sangram always says, without a community, you are simply a commodity. Here we go. Sangram here. I'm the host of the Flip Maffler podcast. And as always, every Tuesday and sometimes even on Thursday, we actually have somebody come and do a takeover which honestly gives me more time to do what I need to do in my life, but it also creates great content on the podcast. So this time, a good friend of mine, really, really a good friend of mine, Ted Wynn, he has a passion for the heroes in healthcare business. And we all know how the healthcare business has been impacted over the last years. And he, he started a podcast right in the middle of it. So Ted, tell us what this podcast series is all about that, and who do you interview in that? Sure. Well, thanks, Andrew, first. And second, thanks for having me here. Yeah, you know, our tagline is dedicated to highlighting bold, selfless professionals in the healthcare industry who are focusing on transforming lives in their communities. And we just thought with the COVID COVID, um, pandemic that we're all living through and still continuing to go through that these people and their stories just wasn't wasn't being told or needed to be highlighted more. And so we just took it on as a, a bit of a passion project and said, let's start talking about these people and what they're doing. And uh, as a result, it's taken off. We have, uh, we are just finished episode 10. Ah, congrats. Uh, thanks. And we have, uh, last numbers I checked, we're about 1,700 downloads already. That is awesome. So the podcast is called Heroes of Healthcare. Yep. Heroes and uh, yeah, and, and uh, we are going to have links to your podcast here. So if people want to continue listening to it after, even after the series is done, they can go check it out. We'll obviously write a blog and all those things. Share some of the people you're interviewing so we get a taste of it. Yeah. So, yeah, and they can, they can listen on the Heroes of Healthcare podcast.com website. So we have a whole website with the episodes posted there, Spotify, Apple, all the regular places as well. But, yeah, we've been really fortunate. Um, we have uh, uh, Dr. Mark Knapp. He was a chief marketing, uh, excuse me, chief medical officer for Mount Sinai in New York City who gave us a whole impact of how New York City responded to the pandemic and, and the stress on the people. We had the chief medical officer for Navant, massive healthcare system in the North Carolina and Southeastern market, talking all about vaccine safety of mRNA and the vaccine that's been coming out. And then we like to mix it up a little bit. We had an old time friend of mine, Jack Curry, who is the voice of the New York Yankees, come on and talk all about baseball and how baseball was dealing with the COVID pandemic, but also how baseball was giving us some normalcy in our lives. Because one of the things we also want to focus on is not just the physicality of, of of the healthcare system, but also mental health. So we've also had the chief wellness officer from another major healthcare system talking about physician burnout, dealing with all the different clinicians and how are they dealing with the medical stress that they're under, under these uncertain times. So it's been very exciting. And it's been, uh, we've had such a cross section of people. I think the listeners are going to find something in uh, great out of each one of them. Awesome, man. Ted, so, so everybody listening, you might be listening to the first episode. You might be listening to the 10th takeover episode of this series. So just make sure you, you look back and see if you have missed anything. But each one of them is uh, something that I feel 
Ted, you being so passionate about it is going to bring life to a lot of people as they hear it. So Ted, again, thanks for doing this. And everybody, enjoy the show. Before we kick off today's episode, I wanted to lean in and just talk to our listeners and let them know that this episode will be a little bit different. When I was looking at the ideas of starting a podcast, I was able to reach out to a friend, Sangram Varahe, who is a marketing expert and has a very successful podcast. And when we were talking about guests and topics and themes, he encouraged me to step outside the norm, to be creative and to elicit different ideas for our listeners that they might find compelling. So when I was thinking about some of the things surrounding healthcare in our society today and being a big sports fan, I thought that it would be interesting to potentially reach out to a friend of mine who has been following the New York Yankees for most of his career. Jack Curry is an Emmy Award winning sportscaster who started his career following baseball and the New York Yankees with the New York Times for 22 years. And then last 10 years has been the sportscaster on the YES network, which is the Yankees broadcast system up in New York as a sportscaster and key announcer. Jack's also had the privilege of writing two best-selling books, one around Derek Jeter's career and more recently around David Cohn's. I had the privilege of going to college with Jack and he's a good friend of mine. So when I was trying to discover whether this could be a good episode, it came clear to me that not only has baseball been interrupted by the pandemic and COVID as we all have has seen, but also it's been a big relief to people in terms of giving them some sense of normalcy in their lives. I also thought it'd be great to understand how baseball was adapting to the pandemic and adjusting with all the protocols that they had. So I hope you'll indulge me as we venture into this next episode of the Heroes of Healthcare podcast and join me in welcoming longtime friend of mine, Jack Curry. Thanks for joining us, Jack. Teddy, it's great to be on your podcast. It's great to talk to you. I feel as if we're back at Fordham University in the mid 80s and we're sitting on Eddie's parade somewhere and we're just having a conversation. And that speaks to the friendship that we've developed because we can pick up from wherever we've talked last. And it's as if we're in our 20s again. And wouldn't that be great to be in our 20s again? (laughs) I think of that too often, I think. You know, I was thinking when we were getting ready to do this, I was thinking how, I was trying to think when the first time I I met you, and I think the connection was our friend Joe Kramer was captain of the basketball team. And you and Bob Papa, who is also a New York sportscaster, has been doing the New York Giants for... 20 plus, almost probably 30 years play-by-play on the radio, we're doing the basketball games for WFUV. First of all, you called Kramer the captain of the basketball team. Oh, no, yeah, that was... He was one of the managers. (laughs) The the manager. That's right. Joe into a a 20-point-a-game scorer (laughs) as much as he would like that. Uh, But you're right. Joe Kramer and Michael Zuccarello, and Zuc was one of my roommates, and he wrote for the school newspaper with me. They were managers on the basketball team, and... Bob Papa and I would broadcast the games for WFUV. And you're right. I met Joe and we became instant friends. And then from Joe, I met all the guys that he lived with. And that was you and Chris Leonard and Matt Gormley and John Leva. So it was a a whole group. And I'm very thankful to have formed all those friendships. And they've lasted all these years later. 
Yeah. Yeah. I know during the pandemic, we all jumped on a Zoom call. So that was fun to see everybody back together again. And you're right after, I don't even want to know how many years, but you know, 30 plus years, it's, it's great that we all can jump back in together. So that's been awesome. So, you know, Jack, I always remember that coming out of college, we were all jumping, you know, where we were going to go, where we were going to go. And, and help me recall, did you land with the New York Times right out of college? My first job out of college was with the Star Ledger in New Jersey, which is okay, the largest that's paper right. in New Jersey. So I ended up working there for about a year and I learned a lot there. The thing about the job with the ledger is it was really locally focused. You were going to cover high school and college sports. And I had greater aspirations than I wanted to cover baseball. I wanted to cover major league baseball. So even while I was at the ledger, I was still sending out resumes left and right, trying to find another job. And fortunately, the times was interested. I, I had done enough writing and sent enough clips to them that I was able to get a job at the Times. And I always tell people this though, I started at the Times at a, at a very low level. I, I was hired as a writing clerk and the clerk part came first. You did 35 hours of clerical work, answering phones, doing research, making copies, getting coffee. And then anything beyond those 35 hours, you could try and write. You could submit articles to editors and assignment editors and hope that you caught their interest. And that's really how things started at the Times. But Teddy, my goal was once I got my foot in the door at the New York Times, I was not going to let them get rid of me. I was going to do enough that they would say, hey, we have to keep this guy. And probably two and a half, three years later, I became a reporter covered the Nets first, some college basketball, some college football. And probably about four years after I started there, I was uh, took over the Yankees, which is where I wanted to be. I, I always wanted to cover Major League Baseball. That's my passion. And growing up, you were a Yankee fan. I won't hold that against you because I'm from the other, I'm on the other side of the New York baseball scene, but you've always been a Yankee fan. Not exactly true. Okay. So when I grew up in Jersey City, with my brothers a couple years older than me, the Mets won the World Series in 69. My brother was seven years old. So he fell in love with the Mets. You just follow what your older brother does. So yeah. I started to like baseball 70, 71. I just followed suit with him. And I was just having this conversation with some, some of my colleagues at, at Yes last night that I really was a Tom Seaver fan. I was a Bud Harrelson fan. But Teddy, even at a young age, I just appreciated and, and loved baseball. Even mm -hmm. if the Mets lost a game to the Cincinnati Reds, I would watch Pete Rose or Joe Morgan and say, oh my gosh, if only the Mets could have those guys. So I think from a young age, I, I recognized what, what baseball greatness was. And the other thing about doing what I do, even now at Yes, I need to be objective. And, and some people don't get that because Yes owns half, um, the Yankees own half of the Yes Network. But I can't be, I'm jumping ahead of you here, but I can't be watching a game and knowing I'm doing the post game and be rooting for them to score a run in the eighth inning. I have to watch the at-bat and was that a slider? Was that a cutter? What is the strategy here? So I put my reporter hat on when I'm doing my job, not, not really the fan hat that I had many years ago. Well, so I, now I like even better knowing that you originally were a Met fan because I wasn't sure about that. But no, and I think, but I think that speaks a lot to your success and your longevity in the business because of that objectivity. You know, I think sometimes some of the sportscasters who can't filter that as well still do okay, but take on a different persona within the industry. 
Some people figure out a way to do that. And I know there are a lot of radio sports talk radio hosts who will tell you all their teams that they root for. And that's great. That's their passion. For me, the second major league game I ever covered, Teddy, there were two Met players because I was doing Mets and Yankees when I first started out. The Times was kind of testing me out to see if I could handle this. I went up to a couple of players after a game and I was so green and so naive. And one of them had had three hits. And I said, can I ask you a couple of questions? And he said, sure. And I said, did it feel good to get three hits? Which is a terrible question. (laughs) First of all, it's a yes, no question. Right. Second of all, no, it it felt awful. Right. The other other teammate jumped me and said, no, he felt awful. He he really wishes that he went 0 for 4 and struck out four times. And that happened probably in 1989. And I can remember everything about that, although I'm not mentioning the names of the two players. <laughs> I drove home that day and that was a slap in the face. That was a reminder that, hey, this is a job and you better take your job seriously. And when you get in the clubhouse, you better have smart, cohesive questions to ask. You better be able to defend those questions if a player gets angry at you. And I I thank those players for kind of giving me that grief because I deserved it. I wasn't as well prepared for my job as I should have been that day. And it was just a reminder that, hey, you're here to cover the game and write about the game or or now broadcast about the game. You're not here to be the guy giving fist bumps if, if the team scores the winning run. Well, like always, those hard lessons are always the best lessons, right? Mm-hmm. I always say we don't remember the easiest teacher we had at school. I told that story not too long ago on another podcast with a college journalist. And I said exactly what you just said. And I I did a book with Derek Jeter about 20 years ago, where one of the chapters was about how failure leads to success. You're absolutely right. We remember the assignments or the or the jobs that we didn't do as well, as opposed to the ones that that we aced. Yeah. Yeah. So as you look back on the let's we'll stay with the New York Times career. When you look back, what are some of the greatest moments when you reflect back on that? What were the ones that you just, you know, at times said, I can't believe I'm here? There's a lot. I covered the 1996 World Series where the Yankees hadn't won a World Series in almost 20 years. And I remember being in the press box, Teddy, and you, you've been to Yankee Stadium. So you, you know how what that ballpark was like. And the press box used to sort of hang over the stands a little bit. And the fans got so excited during that game that the press box was shaking. And people think we're making this stuff up. I'm not making this stuff up. I mean, I actually wondered if this press box was going to tumble over. So I remember that whole experience because when I started covering the Yankees in 91, they were awful. They, they, they were a poor team. Gene Michael and Buck Showalter helped turn that organization around. Then Joe Torre took over in 96. It's Jeter's rookie year. So I always remember that 96 season. I have to mention my relationship with George Steinbrenner. George Steinbrenner is this mythic figure when you're just watching from afar. But I had to develop a relationship with him because if you don't have George Steinbrenner or didn't have George Steinbrenner, when you were covering the Yankees, you were useless to your newspaper or your broadcast station. So I ended up developing a relationship with him and talking to him quite often and calling him. And I mean, some of the stories I have with him ended up being legendary stories as well. Just things I never would have thought when I was still a kid at Fordham. Yeah, no, it's amazing. You know, so one of, one of the questions I, I always wondered as an outsider looking in, how do you get those phone numbers? 
Like, how do you get George Steinbrenner's, you know, or a player's cell phone number? I guess eventually they win, you win their trust and they give it to you or? The best way, right, is to get it from the person. So then when the person picks up his or her phone, they've given it to you. But quite often in this business, right, you get it from a colleague, you get it from another source. I won't give up who the guy is, but if he ever listens to this podcast, he'll know. There's a friend I've developed over the years who he deals with a lot of players for various reasons. And this guy has so many phone numbers that I've probably knocked on his door a hundred times over the years because I know that he has a connection. And if he, if he doesn't have it, somebody else will have it. But with George, I, I think I just came right out and asked him. And I think I said, I want to give you fair coverage in the New York Times. This is your opportunity to do that. If I ever write a story that you're unhappy with, I don't want you calling me after the fact and saying, why did you do that when I asked you for your phone number and you didn't give it to me? But I have to tell you this quick, funny Steinbrenner phone story. So I grew up in Jersey City. Before I was married, I was still living at home with mom and dad. Four rooms, four very close quarters at home. We had one phone, no cell phones. This is 1990, 91, whatever it was. And George Steinbrenner was supposed to call me on a specific day. And he did. And it was really the first time I had an extensive interview with him. And he was talking and going and I'm taking notes and I'm thinking, this is fantastic. I have a great story here. I can't wait to call my editor. All of a sudden you hear a click, you hear someone picking up another phone and and it's a female voice. And the voice says, doesn't anyone know there's a dinner hour around here? And then the phone clicks and Steinbrenner says, who was that? What was that? Who picked up the phone? Now he had previously said to me, don't ever lie to me and, and we'll have a good relationship. So I couldn't lie. And I said, George, that was my mom. And uh, she's calling me to come for dinner. <laughs> and I'm waiting for the George explosion, but instead I've got, I got the family man, George. He said, uh, she's absolutely right. Why are you talking to me? If it's time for dinner, go have dinner. And I said, George, I, I have a few more questions. I, I, and he said, no, 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 go, go finish. Go have dinner with your mom and dad. And uh, we'll finish this conversation some other time. I was so angry at my mother, Teddy. <laughs> but in hindsight, what I figured out, I was probably 25 or 26 at that point. For the next however many years, I know in George Steinbrenner's head, I was the guy living at home with his parents, whose mom wanted him to come for dinner. Yeah, he made it real. That probably softened me up a little bit that I wasn't some hard hitting guy who was going to ask him tough questions. Even though I did do that, I think he saw me as the the kid waiting for dinner with mom and dad. Well, it made you real to him, right? Yes, 100%. You you immediately became, came out of the business. So tell me, how do you get asked or how did you end up doing the Derek Jeter book? That was when you were still at the Times, if I recall. It was. uh, Jeter had had about three or four years in the majors at that point, 1999. And his agent asked me about doing that. I think because I had covered Jeter pretty much from day one from the Yankees drafting him. Right. I wrote about him while he was in the minor leagues. I went to Kalamazoo, Michigan once during the offseason and spent a day with Derek, his mom, his dad, and his sister. They were doing some charitable works that day. And you spend a whole day with somebody, you're going to figure out whether or not you can get along with that person. And I actually think that day was, was pivotal to me down the line to them saying, hey, do you want to you work on this book with Derek? Because 
that book could have been done. I'm not saying other other writers could have done that book, but I knew everything about Derek Cheater at that point. Every, everything that I don't want to say I knew everything about him, but I had covered him to that point. So if Derek Cheater sat down with writer X who wrote for People Magazine and had never covered baseball, he was going to have to start from zero. Right. If you needed to get to 100 to finish a book with me, we were probably already at 50 or 60. Right. So I think that was a comfort level for Derek as well. That makes sense. So with the times for, I think you said 22 years, and then you make this transition to yes. How did that happen? It's interesting, Teddy. Michael Kay, another Fordham guy who preceded us by about four years, is a really good friend of mine. And he would always implore me to try and do TV. And I was very comfortable at the Times. I, I often thought that I could spend my whole career at the Times. I started there when I was 22. And I often thought, Hey, a 40 plus career at the New York Times, 40 year plus career would be something to be really proud of. And I wouldn't have had any, any regrets. And the business started to change. And I'll be quite honest, in, in 2009, the Times was offering buyouts. And I started to review my career. And I looked at what I had done at the Times. And I didn't know, Teddy, that there was a lot left to accomplish there. I could have kept covering baseball kept covering World Series, right. writing columns, writing features, but I was never going to leave sports. I, I'm not interested in covering the Olympics or covering football and going to the Super Bowl. So that combined with the buyout, combined with, and I love newspapers and I'll always support newspapers, combined with the fact that I, I saw the print journalism side of the business going in a different direction. I got an agent and I, I asked him, do you think I would be able to transition into TV? And he said, let me, it was actually Michael Kay's former agent, Steve Lefkowitz, who has since passed on. That's why I said former. So he told me, I I think I could get you four or five interviews. And he was right. I left the Times. I took the buyout and I had four different interviews, probably within a week or two. And yes, was the most interested and I was the most interested in them. So that's how that, that connection ended up happening. Well, it seems like a logical fit. And what helped me too, Teddy, is I had worked for Yes, I guess on a freelance basis. They have an off-season baseball show. So even while I was at the Times, I was appearing on their airwaves to talk baseball. So the people that I work with today, Bob Lorenz, Jared Boschnack, I worked with those guys already when I was at the Times. So I was excited about taking that leap to go from the times to yes, because it wasn't a a foreign leap. I I knew a lot of the people I was already working with. Sure. Sure. So let's talk about sticking with our theme heroes of healthcare. And let's start to shift a little bit towards, I guess, like what we're coming hard to believe we're probably coming up on a year, right? January is when we all start even December last year in January, we started hearing about this thing in China that was kind of going around. And as I had mentioned in the intro, you know, I wanted to talk with you because I think it's obviously hit you personally, like it's hit a lot of us personally. And it's also, there's also been a lot of real benefits that we've heard about from baseball, from a mental aspect for people Mm -hmm. coming back. So if you don't mind just kind of sharing with the listeners, you know, I guess it's like January, February timeframe, and you're hearing about this thing. And what are you hearing out of Major League Baseball? I was in spring training in Tampa when everything was shut down. And I will never forget that day because as you said, the drumbeat started getting louder and the fear and the tension started to grow. And after the NBA shut down, 
we actually had a meeting the next day at Yes, a meeting preparing for the season inside a ballroom in Tampa. And it was one of the most awkward meetings I've ever attended, Teddy. Not that anyone did anything wrong, but we were all talking about planning for a season that I think we all knew this is not going to start on time. Something is going to happen. And baseball got shut down that day. And I remember being scared. I remember being worried like anybody would be. My wife, Pamela, was in Tampa with me at the time. And our bosses said to us, we, we encourage you to go home. We think at this point you should go home. I still have that reporter gene in me and I have that, that reporter antenna up. I stayed in Florida for a couple extra days just in case the Yankees did anything. I didn't know what might happen. At that point, actually, Florida was probably safer than New Jersey. So for, for anyone who's listening to this and saying, why didn't you go home? We spent a couple extra days in Florida and then it was, it was readily apparent that, yeah, it was time to go home. And I didn't know what baseball was going to do at that point. I, I will be honest with you. I, I wondered in my head and I had some conversations with some colleagues. I said, what do you think they'll, they'll take about a month or so? You think in six weeks, they'll be back up? No, we didn't know. And probably should have been more educated on the topic that no, they weren't going to be able to just shut down and get rolling again in a month. And I think at that point, Teddy, it was just a ton of question marks as to how are they going to potentially get a season back going? But, but let's not forget the other part of it. How are you going to keep everybody healthy? What, what's going on in our country? What, what is going on here so that we can all try and get through this with, without misery? And, and unfortunately, there, there's been too much misery surrounding this. Right. Well, and as, as important as baseball is to the people who are making careers out of it, like yourself and the players and everything, when you start to look at it through the lens of what the pandemic was and the world and the deaths and the suffering kind of going on around it, you kind of start to, it starts to realign your priorities a little bit. You're, you're absolutely right. And I would always try and preface my discussions about baseball by saying exactly what you just said. We ended up doing a lot of, a lot of content for yes during the, the layoff, during the period where we're waiting for baseball to come back. And they called it, yes, we're here. So we wanted to remind our viewers that we were still here and there'd be various interviews. And, but we always started off every show or every interview by kind of saying, hey, listen, we understand that everybody's going through a lot right now. We're, we're here to give you some content to maybe take your mind off that. Let's, yeah. let's, let's talk about what the Yankees will look like once Garrett Cole actually gets to throw a pitch. And the more I talk to people around baseball, Teddy, as, as the week started to advance, I did believe they were going to play a season. I, I ended up having debates with, with family members, my, my brother being one of them, where people were saying, there's no way they're going to play. I actually started to grow in confidence that they were going to be able to play. I, I just thought that they would figure out a way. I, I'm not excusing how dire the situation was. To this day, there are some people who will argue, oh, professional sports never should have come back. Right. I disagree. I think that done the right way with care, that as you said earlier, there, there is a benefit to, to being able to have something else to focus on. And, and I think baseball help provide that. I know personally speaking, my, my wife's parents are in their 80s and I just know how excited they were to be able to watch baseball games at night. Yeah. So have you guys done or looked at that? I mean, I know that I've heard things about that and, you know, I'd love for you to share a little bit. I know you had the privilege of interviewing Dr. Fauci as Major League Baseball is getting ready to come back, but 
what have you heard about the mental aspects of it? Have you heard the, I guess, has it just been what you just stated, the pro and con side of it? Or what have you heard about people saying, this gives me some normalcy to my life? For me, and it's probably because I do talk to a lot of passionate baseball fans. For me, it was more of the latter, that people needed it. They were waiting for it. And even though it was a different version of baseball and there weren't fans in the stands and we had to accept that, I think that people were, were looking for that type of diversion. And again, you had to follow all the protocols. And I had the, the protocols that the, the players got. It was more than 100 pages. And you're looking through that and you're realizing how many different, I don't want to say hoops you have to jump through because that's not really what I mean. I mean, rules that you have to follow. Yeah. Wear a mask, socially distance as much as you can when possible. Wash your hands, all the basic things that we talked about. And I'm glad you brought up Dr. Fauci because when I look back on 2020, and if you asked me, what were your highlights of 2020? And that's not really a year where you want to reach for highlights. We all probably want to forget this year. But I I was very privileged to interview Dr. Fauci because I thought that he was such a stabilizing force during all of this. And when he spoke, I wanted him to continue talking. And I, I was fortunate when I spoke to him that we talked obviously about what was going on, Teddy, but half the interview was also about baseball. Mm-hmm. And the one thing that, that struck me after I interviewed him is several people said to me, you got him to smile. I hadn't seen him smile. Well, he's not going to smile when he's, when he's giving a White House briefing and, and, it, and it's very dire information. Right. Doom and gloom. Him, yeah. You ask him about growing up as a Yankee fan and he starts talking about Yogi Berra. He's going to smile. And even Dr. Fauci at that point, I'm getting to your question. He talked about the, the mental benefit of, of just having something else to focus on. I love that. I love the title of your podcast and I love what you're doing because I think sometimes we forget that there are still positive stories out there. We forget that there are heroes. I don't know about you and Susan and your family, but there are times where I have to tell Pamela, I can't watch the news tonight. And it's not a, I work in the news business and it's right. not a stick my head in the sand approach. It's just, I need a break. I I can't do it tonight. So I do think the mental aspect of having, whether it's baseball, football, basketball, hockey, I I mean, you know me, I'm a a fanatical music fan. For me, I can't tell you how many live streams I've watched. A band, you know, in a basement somewhere, and it's different than if you saw them in an arena, fine. I'm on board. I want to hear it. I need to hear some music. I need that diversion. So one of the things I loved about the interview with Dr. Fauci was your question to him about baseball and sports is all about high fives and chest bumps. And you asked him, what about that? And why don't you share what his response was? Dr. Fauci was blunt, Teddy. He did not want that to happen. His basic message was don't do it. And I know it's hard for players. And I know when you get a hit, you, you want to be able to celebrate it. You want to be able to enjoy it with your teammates. But Dr. Fauci was telling the truth there. There, There's no need to do that. And I don't think teams were were great at doing that, Teddy. There were some teams who I thought incorporated some creative gestures. We all know a guy hits a home run when he gets to third base, he he slaps the hand of the third base coach. I saw some teams where it would be like a fake slap or a little bit of a salute. Every game you you would see guys high-fiving and handshakes and and fist bumps and 
that's not really the protocol you were supposed to follow. And I get that it's very hard. And, and I get that it's difficult when you're exerting yourself to, to want to wear a mask. But those were the protocols that would help you keep yourself and keep those around you the safest. Yeah. Well, and we all know that Dodgers came under some heat at the end of the World Series for some of the players not following the protocols. And so, yeah, that was that was so surreal because Major League Baseball got to the finish line and it was a lot of work and there were some hiccups and some potholes along the way. The Miami Marlins being foremost among them had more than a dozen cases. I think it was close to 20 early in the year. And you get to the end and then Justin Turner has to leave the game because of a a test. And then he comes on the field after the game. I mean, just not smart. And I know we can't put ourselves in his shoes and he is generally known as a great guy and a great teammate. But one of the pictures, Teddy, he got a picture with the team. He's near Dave Roberts, his manager, who is a cancer survivor. Right. With his mask down, not good behavior, just very questionable behavior. I get that you wanted to celebrate the World Series title at that point, but you can't. Yeah. There's a lot of things things we can't do these days. And we could get into a whole conversation of the mask, no mask, and should I and don't I, but we'll we'll save that for another time. Wear it. (laughs) Yeah, just wear it. Exactly. But let's also talk about, I know COVID has hit you and your family personally. You, you know, and I remember, unfortunately, having to find out that you had been infected through a Instagram post, but nonetheless, you fall and pray. And thankfully, thank God, you're all good and recovered and everything. But what if you don't mind sharing, how does that hit you guys personally? Well, first of all, I want to say and reiterate what you just said. I'm very thankful that the four people in my family, myself included, that well, actually, I should say seven because my wife's sister and our brother-in-law and our nephew also had it, but we're all fine. And I'm very thankful and I'm very grateful because there are some families whose story did not have that ending. And I, I pray for them and I, I, I console them in what has been a dreadful year. But for us, Teddy, Pamela and I, this is sort of a message about this entire situation. My wife worked for the company that makes Lysol for 27 years. So she knows a lot about infectious diseases. And I tell you that we were as careful as careful could be. What happened is her her 87-year-old mother-in-law went to a doctor's appointment and had a mask and a shield on. And they asked her to remove the shield for a certain exam that she was getting. And she wasn't comfortable doing that, but they said it it would make the exam easier to do. And we have pinpointed that that's where she ended up getting it because two or three days later is when she started to feel symptoms. She passed it on to her husband, Pamela's dad, and to Pamela. And then Pamela passed it on to me. And the timing was so bizarre and strange because I came home from the final regular season game of the Yankees, knowing that I'd be covering the playoffs in a couple of days. And that's when Pamela told me she had gone for a COVID test that day. She wanted me to come home from work. She didn't want to bother me with it while I was doing a post-game show. And we found out a day or two later that she tested. Well, once she went, I had to call yes and say, well, my, my wife went for a test. I'm going to have to go too. And I knew I was going to be out. I knew I wouldn't be able to cover the playoffs. But again, you're worried about your health at that point. I, I don't want to just have my reporter work hat on. And Teddy, it was scary. Yeah, I'm not going to lie to you. First of all, you, her parents are in their 80s. 
My, my wife has an underlying condition. She has something called RSD, a neurological condition that is a very painful condition. And you, you get very, very worried. Now, the ending is happy for us. As I said, we were all able to conquer it. But Pamela had nine weeks where she was down and she had some really serious and bizarre symptoms. Fatigue was overwhelming. She had dizziness to the point where we thought she had vertigo. If, if she had a, a pen in her hand and dropped it and went down to pick up the pen, it was almost as if she would tumble over. So it was just a reminder, you could take all of the safety precautions and, and be as careful as possible. I mean, I think I went out three times from March to about October when it wasn't work-related, never went to a supermarket and went to one outdoor dinner, and we still ended up getting it. But again, very thankful that everybody is okay today. Yeah. You know, so again, with the theme of kind of the heroes, and that's what we've been talking about on this podcast is those people who are so unsung. And I've been continuing to repeat this. The thing that strikes me all the time is that superheroes are people of superhuman powers is faster than a speeding bullet and all of those sorts of things. And these people who are working in these medical facilities don't have those superhuman powers to protect them, but yet they're there. And they're putting their life on the line to save other people. I mean, it's just a call. Yeah, I, I have a few people who were that sort of hero for us. Dr. Chris Ahmad is the Yankees team physician. And I know Dr. Ahmad well, and I've actually gone to him because I, I have bad knees from running. So I go to him for these gel injections and it allows me to run, keep running, get out on the road. But Dr. Ahmad heard about Pamela and I, and in the middle of the playoffs, he's, he's out covering the, the playoffs with the Yankees. He called us and spoke to us for about an hour and answered a lot of our questions. But then Teddy, he also put me in touch with another Yankee doctor who I actually had never met. We, our paths had never crossed, Dr. Paul Lee, and he's a Yankee internist who was actually very instrumental in, in New York City's fight against COVID. He, he is not our doctor. I had never met him. He did a Zoom call with Pamela and I for an hour and 15 minutes. He answered every one of our questions. Mm -hmm. And it was the most reassuring call that I've ever had with a doctor because we were scared. We, we didn't know what to expect. This was early in the process. Sure. And he laid out a plan for us and told us what we should be doing, what we should expect. He followed that up with text messages. So both Dr. Ahmad and Dr. Lee, I, I am forever thankful to them. And I could tell why they are the special doctors that they are because of how they, they help treat us during this time. Yeah. Yeah, no, the, the stories have been amazing in terms of that way. And I know just from our kind of pre-call stuff that you've had lots of people, you know, touched with this, both from passing on or, or surviving. I love the story about Mr. Is a bit alone, who is the 98-year-old. Gabe, Gabe Vitalone, Teddy. And how about this? He was a, he's a Fordham grad, so you have to love that. Gotta love that. He was, he was supposed to sing the national anthem at Yankee Stadium in April. If you look at this gentleman's resume and all that he had accomplished in his life, war veteran, college professor and coach, has won over 100 medals competing in senior events, races and things like that. Well, he decided that one thing lacking from his resume was singing the national anthem at Yankee Stadium. So as a 97 or 98-year-old, that, that was his dream. And he, he tried out one day at Yankee Stadium. They said yes. And he was supposed to do it in April. Obviously, the game got canceled. 
So we are postponed. We interviewed him for yes. And he was kind enough to do a version of it on the yes network. So we actually had his version of the national anthem before he did it at a Yankee game. And then later in the season, once baseball came back, Gabe ended up doing it virtually. So though it wasn't as cool as doing it at Yankee Stadium, right. I know he was still thrilled to get the opportunity to do it. Yeah, well, it was a, a perfect 2020 story, right? Where the bucket list got checked, but it was a little bit different than what he probably expected or thought. And adding to the 2020 story is here's a man in his 90s who was in a facility with his wife. They live in a facility. I mean, to try and get the interview and Zoom with him, he had never Zoomed before. Right. So I had one of his, his son-in-law and his son trying to help. And, and they moved heaven and earth to try and make sure that Gabe could do this interview with him, which I'm, I'm deeply appreciative of so that we could get his story out there. And I still email with him and keep in touch with him. And that was a pretty, a pretty cool story to come out of 2020, getting the chance to meet Gabe. Yeah, no, that's awesome. So as we're getting to the end of our time and we're going to wrap things up here, why don't you share with the listeners a little bit? I know the season's early, you know, pitchers and catchers don't record until technically until February. I think you mentioned that some of the, a lot of this is still being discussed, but what are you hearing about the potential 2021 season? Anything talk around vaccines for players ahead of time, any of that sort of things that you can share? I think, Teddy, as we look ahead to 2021, there are schedules in place. There is a reporting date for all the teams. There are spring training games scheduled. There's a 162 game schedule that's already been sent to every team. I think the question when I talk to baseball people is, will those schedules have to be changed? We don't know what 2021 is going to bring yet. I think the vaccines are, are an interesting wrinkle in all of this. What will teams protocol be about that? I know personally speaking, if I had the opportunity, I would absolutely get the vaccine, but not everyone might share that view. There might be some folks who, who don't want that. Will players require it? Can you require it? I, I don't know that you can do that. So I think we have some unanswered questions hovering over the 2021 season. I know we've done some off-season baseball shows at Yes, where Buck Showalter works for us now. He's a former Yankee manager, three-time manager of the year. He believes that there's no way they'll play 162 games. He thinks that you're, you're going to have to have a shorter season. And if you look at the season... And you do start a little bit later. Well, the longer you wait, Teddy, the, the closer you probably are to the more vaccines right. being available. And the closer you probably are to fans having the opportunity to be at games, which the owners obviously want because they went through all of 2020 with, with no revenue from fans being at games. Well, the player side of it, because everything is a collective bargaining agreement, they want to play 162 games because they want to be paid for 162 games. Sure. They lost 65% of their salary last year, of their revenue. So I think we're kind of headed in a direction where we just have to see what ends up being best for the sport, best for the players. I, I do look toward 2021, though, with a lot of hope and a lot of optimism because if you were able to get through 2020 with this truncated 60-game season that was different than anything we've ever seen before, I think whatever version we get of baseball in 2021 is going to be much better. And I am hopeful that fans will be in the stadium at some point. I can't predict, will that be 
June, July, August. I don't know. None of us do, but sure. But I think that will bring back an important part of baseball for a lot of fans, because as we talked about, just the mental aspect of it and being able to go to a game, feeling safe about it, cheering on your team. There's a lot of value in that. Yeah. Well, I just hope that the almighty dollar doesn't doesn't make it, you know, make us make decisions that are not in the best interest. Because like you said, you can probably recover from a couple of bad financial years, hopefully, but you can't, re- if you don't recover from the, from the virus, then that changes everything. Yeah. And I think that's a theme that, that everyone would echo. I, I think you have to believe that way. And I think along the path that Major League Baseball has taken you, the health of your players and your staff and everyone around your team should be of utmost importance. That should be your number one priority. And like you, I hope that we continue to see and hear that that is the focus because we all know that 2020 is something that that we'll never forget in our lifetimes and that we hope we never have anything close to this ever again. Yeah, absolutely. For sure. So we usually close each of these episodes, Jack, with since we are the heroes of healthcare, we always try to close with asking each of our guests, who is or was your hero now or growing up? That's an easy question for me to answer, Teddy. My, my, my hero absolutely was my mom. And my mom passed away in 1994. And I actually uh, was at her cemetery recently for my mom and dad and said a few prayers while I was there. And I, I always thank both of them. And it's not that my father wasn't my hero, but my mom was more of my hero And I always tell people who haven't met my mother, if you like anything about me, if there's one small thing that you like about me, it's because of my mom. I know I have my mother's work ethic. I know I have my mother's compassion. I know I have my mother's empathy for people and just her her giving side. And and I've always tried to to try and and give as much as I can to people. I, I have a platform as a sports journalist to be able to cover games and and write about them or talk about them. But I've always been more interested in the people that I've met along the way and the people you can have an impact on, whether it's someone you met who you wrote an article about or someone you've maybe tried to help from a journalistic side of things, mentoring them. All of that comes from my mom and, and a love of baseball. I mean, my brother was really the first one to introduce me to baseball, but my mother really ignited that flame. We would take two buses and a train. To, to go to Shea Stadium and watch a doubleheader. And I, I remember those days fondly. So of all the questions you asked me on this podcast, that was the easiest one for me to answer. My mom was and, and always will be my hero. Well, that's awesome. And, uh, and, you know, I see that obviously in you and I'd probably be remiss if I didn't kind of tell this story. So, you know, Jack, your ability to touch people and kind of leave them with that lasting impression. And it may seem like a small thing or kind of a funny story, but to me and and my wife, Susan, and and our girls, you know, Jack has a, a special place in our house. I remember the Yankees were playing the Braves in an inner, I was one of the first probably interleague ball games that started again. So you had the opportunity to come visit us in Atlanta. And there's not a lot of things I've got good recollection about. So you can tell why this touched me and our family. So we said, let's meet for dinner. And you said, okay, I think we, if I remember right, we met at the Hard Rock Cafe in downtown Atlanta, not far from the stadium. And I brought my my two daughters with me who at the time, I think they were about maybe six and 12 or 10 and four. 
And we had dinner and you were very gracious to pay for it, which I remember. And they didn't really eat much being young girls. And you offered them dessert. And I, being the dad, said no dessert for them. They didn't even eat their meal. And you retorted back. Why don't you share with them what the retort was? Well, I said that their entree or their dinner shelf was full, but their dessert shelf was empty. So we needed to fill up the dessert shelf. That was wide open. (laughs) And they, to this day, have never forgotten that. And probably to mine and Susan's dismay certain nights reminded us of that when they wanted dessert and and dinner was over. But, you know, your interest in them and my older daughter, who's now living in New York and pursuing acting career, and, you know, you're back and forth with her and you, you embody those characteristics that you love in your mom. And I see it in you every day. And I'm thankful that I can call you a friend. Well, I appreciate that. And I appreciate you saying that because as I said, anybody who makes that connection to my mom, that's, that's heartfelt. And that means a lot to me. And I say the same to you. Likewise, that I can call you a friend. And I remember, I'll say this. I remember sleeping over your house one time too in Alpharetta. I stayed, I stayed with you guys one night Mm -hmm. and I think it was impromptu. I don't think I was going to stay. And then I decided to stay. And I remember Susan just giving me, I didn't have anything. All of a sudden I had a toothbrush. I think I had a pair of your sweats. I had a t-shirt and I was (laughs) like, Hey, this is, this is better than the Hilton or, or, or the Hyatt or whatever. Ritz Carlton, the, the Waynes know how to do it. And I, I do keep in touch with Melissa. We have a, we have a music connection and, we talk about that. And I love when, when Becca, your daughter, who helps you out with this podcast, she dropped a dessert shelf reference on me in one of the email exchanges. So that made me chuckle. And I realized that that story has resonated for years. Yep. It'll, it'll, be, a, it'll be a Wayne tradition forever that Jack delivered for us. So listen, I appreciate your friendship. I appreciate your time. Thanks for sharing this a little bit outside of the box of Heroes of Healthcare, but nonetheless relevant in terms of everything that we're dealing with. So all the best to you and to Pamela. Continue your speedy recovery and her family. And thanks again for your time. Thanks so much, Teddy. Good luck with the rest of the podcast. This is a great idea. You've been listening to the Flip My Funnel podcast. To make sure that you never miss an episode, subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast player. If you have an iPhone, we'd love for you to open the Apple Podcasts app and leave a review. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time.